What a great morning. An opportunity to t- sing about the cross and the opportunity to see the cross in action in the, the baptisms of these lives, these committing, co- committing their lives to the Lord. This morning we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, next week in your bulletin, you'll have it laid out for you, titles, texts, so you can see everywhere that we're going over the next couple of months. And the series is going to be about the church. This morning I'd like to speak with you specifically about the characteristics of a God-glorifying church. Now obviously, by choosing the title that I did, churches have the opportunity to more glorify God or less glorify God. And admittedly, at the very start of a series about the church, we need to acknowledge that this is not an easy subject. People seem to have opinions about how to do church. What you do. And the truth is, uh, other churches in the area don't help us a whole lot. Whether it's church architecture, church music, or church names, sometimes you don't actually know that you're dealing with a church. We've got one large, quickly growing church that sounds like a support group for rock climbers. We've got, some of you will get that later. You've seen the yard signs. Other times, we have churches that sound like they're day spas or country clubs. Nothing about church in their name. And so, some of our churches sound like recovery groups. What in the world is going on with the church in this day and age? So at the outset, let me say very clearly, we're not here to throw rocks at other churches. Uh, We're not here to make fun. We're here to study the Word and how it should impact what we do as a body of believers. And the problem is that there is a continuum that churches place themselves on related to traditionalism and innovation. It's very clear to tell the difference between the two. You can just look at the architecture, the title, the music, and you can figure out where a church places itself. But the truth is, it's easier to pick on the problems of another group than it is to pick on the problems of your own group. It's easy to pick. If you're a traditional church, boy, it's real easy to pick out all the problems in those innovative churches. And if you're an innovative church that's really cool, man, it's really easy to pick on the stodginess of these traditional churches, isn't it? What in the world are we to do? So today we're going to start our series by looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and uh, follow me along there. Ephesians is a great book, and in it... Paul is delighted to talk about the extraordinary work of God through the gospel. Ephesians just drips with the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul overflows in his praise to God for the blessings of redemption. Think about it. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes explicit reference reference to how all three persons of the Trinity have worked for the salvation of God's people. It's an amazing thing. Paul explains this process a bit more in Ephesians chapter 2 and explains how we're made alive uh, through Christ. We're granted peace with God and we are incorporated into God's family. Ephesians 1 and 2 lead us to our passage here this morning. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wants to talk about God's eternal purpose and how that has resulted in the church. And in this passage, Paul gives us several great characteristics 
of a God-glorifying church. And so let's begin by looking at the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul begins this chapter by starting in prayer. In verse 1 he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He's beginning a prayer and he gets interrupted. Now you can tell that because if you look down at verse 14, he starts over again. And this time he actually gets to praying. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Everything that happens in, in, in verses 2 through 13 is Paul being interrupted in his prayer and marveling at the uh, eternal purpose of God in creating the church. So as he thinks about this gospel, uh, it inevitably leads him to think about the church. And this will become clear as we read on. But in these first two verses, we see something about Paul that is absolutely worth us pondering this morning. Look with me at the two verses. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Our first point from these two verses is that Paul was satisfied to suffer for the service of the gospel. Paul was satisfied to suffer for the service of the gospel. And the same is true for any church that wants to glorify God. Churches must be satisfied, happy to suffer for the service of the gospel. Look very closely at these two verses, and you'll see that Paul uses two special words to describe himself. He calls himself, in verse 1, a prisoner. He calls himself, in verse 2, you don't see this clearly, but he calls himself a steward. We don't use that word steward very much. Maybe a better English word for that is he's a manager. He's an administrator. As an administrator, Paul is not the creator. That's God. Paul's role as an administrator, as a manager, is to faithfully administrate what had been handed to him. He has the responsibility specifically to handle the grace that was given to him in the preaching of the gospel. So in Paul's case specifically, successful administration included the preaching of the gospel and the end result of his faithful administration is what? Jail time. He faithfully administrates the grace that God had given to him and people respond by saying, we're so thankful that you've come to preach to us. No, they throw him in jail. Boy, I'm glad (laughs) I didn't live there and have that responsibility. So we think about this as, as a church. Let me ask this pointed question. Would you be willing to serve the church to the point of prison time? Boy, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? What would you be willing to suffer for the gospel? What, will, what would you be willing to endure? Paul was willing to suffer for the church because he saw suffering for the church as suffering for the gospel. Now, he's not suffering for Sunday school. He's not suffering for the senior adult ministry. He's not suffering for Lottie Moon. All those things are part of it. He's not suffering for a pet program. He's suffering for the gospel, which is the foundation of any Bible-believing church. For Paul, there was a reciprocal relationship between his love for the gospel and his love for the church. His love for the gospel drove his love for the church, and his love for the church 
drove his love for the gospel. But in our day and age, there are tons of people who talk about loving Jesus, who talk about loving the gospel, but they clearly don't exhibit any love for the church. Yeah, I love the gospel, but man, church, I don't need it. It's an interruption. How in the world have we gotten to a point where people can claim to love Jesus without being committed to his bride? You may never be in a position to suffer for the gospel. Now listen, naysayers about the future of our country uh, think that we may lose religious freedom. Who's to say in 20 years that we won't have the freedom to preach the gospel? I don't know. Don't have that gift to be able to predict the future. Let's just say that suffering for the gospel is probably outside the realm of what God will call you to do. That may not be a realistic scenario for most of us. While you may not be called to suffer for the gospel, every single Christian here today has the opportunity to sacrifice for the gospel. Perhaps it's your giving. Certainly it's your time. You're here this morning. You're not on vacation. You're not at home. You're not cutting the grass. Let me suggest a particular application when we talk about sacrificing for the gospel. Uh, I am 39 years old today. (laughs) But in, in many ways, I am an old soul. I love the things that I have grown up with. I cherish my heritage as a Southern Baptist. I was an RA. I was a sunbeam. If you haven't grown up in Southern Baptist life, I'm speaking lingo. You have no idea what I'm talking about. I was in Music Makers 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I have done CWT, I have done EE, and I enjoy ESPN. I've done it all. (laughs) There is not a Southern Baptist program that I have not done and that I have not enjoyed. I've experienced God, I've built together, and I have shared Jesus without fear. I've done it all. Everything that comes down the pipeline. So trust me when I say, I'm good. I'm good with our heritage. My concern is not for our heritage, it's for our future. 85% of Southern Baptist churches, and Southern Baptist churches are among the strongest Bible-believing churches around today. That's just a matter of fact. 85% of Southern Baptist churches are plateaued or declining. They may not exist in in the next generation. In addition to that, the latest research indicates that the vast majority of 18 to 30-year-olds leave Southern Baptist churches as soon as they don't have to, as soon as they're not forced to go to church anymore. They turn 18, they have the opportunity to do what they want to on Sunday, and what do they do? Maybe they go to church, but they don't go to the church that they've grown up in. They're looking for something that scratches the itch that they have. One church member even mentioned to me uh, when I first got here, he said, you know, one of the things that just stymies me is that when, when I look at our church, we're at the exact same point that we were 30 years ago. Yeah, we grew a little, we lost a little, but when you take out all the peaks and valleys, Northside is no different than it was 30 years ago. How do we change that? One of the things that I I am thoroughly convinced has to happen 
senior adults, you have seen a tidal wave of culture change in your day and age. I bet 50 years ago, you could go to Walmart if it existed. You'd go to Walmart and hand out a Bible quiz to people at Walmart, and they would do better than perhaps even our own people in Sunday school. People in the church don't know the Bible as well as the culture at large knew the Bible 50 years ago. So what has happened is the culture has completely changed. And here's one of the things that I see a weakness in our Southern Baptist churches. We love missions, but missions is something that happens over there. If you're working with people of a different tone of skin, black, red, yellow, or brown, that's when you do missions. We've got to figure out how to reach them. The problem is the culture has shifted underneath our feet, and we've not even paid attention to it. We have to do missions here. 50 years ago, you could expect people to show up to church on a Sunday morning, couldn't you? To say, shame, shame at you young people for not coming to church doesn't fix the problem. We've got to learn to be missionaries in our own culture. I don't know what the statistic is, but I think by, by um, 12... 20, seven years, kindergartens in the United States will be minority Caucasian. Less than 50%. Our nation's changing. And if we don't learn how to do missions here, we have no hope for doing missions around the world. What our missionaries are doing to contextualize the gospel in foreign lands needs to be done in our culture, which is increasingly becoming foreign territory, isn't it? We've got to learn how to do that. So here's my question. As we dream about our future, this is an important question for Northside Baptist Church to figure out. What is most important? Our purpose or our platform? What we do or how we do it? Our mission or our methodology? And the challenge for us is if Paul was willing to suffer for the gospel, would you be willing to sacrifice? Ten years down the road, church looks a little bit different. Are you willing to sacrifice that for the purpose of our mission of reaching people for Christ? That's a strong question. The second characteristic of a God-glorifying church is not just this willingness to be satisfied with suffering for the gospel, but it's a continual marveling at the mystery of the church. And Paul talks about that in verses 3 through 10. He says, here's the administration, the stewardship I was given. That by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul begins these verses by talking about this thing he calls a mystery in verse 3 and verse 9. And in verse 4, he calls it the mystery of Christ. This word doesn't do us any favors because the minute we hear the word mystery, we start thinking Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie novels. Others of us go, if it's a mystery, why bother thinking about it? We're not going to understand a thing of it anyways. That's not a good way to understand this mystery. Paul's emphasis, uh, it's not easily translatable into an English word. What he's saying is that he learned something outside of the realm of natural knowing. God revealed something to him. So even though Paul is telling us what he knows, it's still a mystery. He's saying it's God's knowledge. God has told us something. It's not complicated. It's not um, unknowable. It is knowable. It just required God telling us, this is what I'm doing. Now we know. And even though we know and we can comprehend, it's still a mystery. He's not saying that it's a riddle wrapped in an enigma shrouded by a proverb. He's not saying it's a brain teaser. He's saying, God told me this. I wouldn't have known it any other way, and that's why it's a mystery. He's telling us he's received knowledge that was outside the scope of natural knowledge, that it came from a supernatural source, namely God. God revealed it to him directly. So even though we know it today, it's still a mystery. Well, what is this mystery? What is this mystery? Paul refers to it three times in this passage. This mystery, this supernatural revelation that God revealed specifically to Paul, the church. How woefully inadequate most of our views of the church are. This is the place where the manifold wisdom of God is explained to the entire cosmos. And we wonder what's going to happen at the next potluck. We want to critique Will's bow tie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Bo. Uh, <laughs> we don't think about the mystery that the God who created all things, going all the way back to creation, intended for this church to exist in this time to proclaim his gospel. From some of the earliest days of Scripture, we know that God intended to save the Gentiles. You remember when Abraham was called all the way back in the book of Genesis? He said, I'm calling you, and you will be a blessing to ethnic Jewish people. That's not what he said. Who is he going to bless? All nations. God's a missionary God. This mystery, while a mystery was not an innovation, it was God fulfilling his purposes. Moses and the prophets wrote of Christ and his salvation to the ends of the world. And while God had promised this to Abraham, everything was dark and shadowy. It's easy for us to look back and see Christ in the Old Testament. It was not so clear for Old Testament saints. And so God has made clear. He's helped us to fully realize who Christ is and what he would do, but it was not clear until after the giving of the Spirit. The blessing of the Gentiles was not a mystery. God was clear about that even in the Old Testament. What was the mystery? was that God was going to include them into the same institution. Wouldn't it have been easier for him to create a Gentile church and a Jewish church? You ever tried to mix oil and water? One of the things that's interesting, you remember some of your Bible history. Paul 
uh, took Timothy to Jerusalem right before Paul got captured. And the threat, the idea that Paul had even perhaps, it wasn't true, had taken a Gentile into the temple courts was enough for them to want to kill Paul. Jews hated Gentiles so much, you have to at least go, God, what are you doing putting them under the same roof? That's, you're asking for warfare. But in God's wisdom, the mystery was that they were going to be included into the same body. You also remember that in the early church, the church started with Jewish believers. You remember what they said you had to do if you were a Gentile believer? You had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. They so cherished their heritage that they weren't willing to give anything up. And the fact that both Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus would be joined together into one new group was thoroughly unexpected. The incorporation of both into one new body was something new. So if we want to marvel at the mystery of the church, how do we, how do, we do that as a church? Thankfully, our passage gives us three extraordinary charges, things that are set out as an example for us to emulate. Uh, this mystery in its very nature dealt with inclusion. Look at verse 6. Uh, Paul says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are, listen to the repeated emphasis, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. For us to properly be a church that glorifies God, we too must be intentional about inclusion. This is much easier said than done. Think about how this played out for the early Jewish and Gentile believers. Who do you think? For both groups to come together in one, both groups had to sacrifice. Who do you think had to sacrifice more? Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians? Well, think about this. Jewish Christians had grown up with a tremendous heritage of knowing the God of the Bible. They had the temple. They had the synagogue. They had the law. They had all these dietary laws. They had the Sabbath. They had all kinds of things. They were more spiritually mature in the sense that they had a long history with the God of the Bible. Yet they were the ones who had to sacrifice more in order to reach people who had not been reached yet. Their day of worship changed. Now listen, I'm not the sharpest arrow in the quiver, but if we said we're going to start worshiping on Saturday other than Sunday, I think there'd probably be a little bit of conversation about that. Probably would. They had to give up a lot in their heritage because they believed that the mission was more important. You'll remember they were so pro-heritage, they were so pro their Old Testament heritage, they did want to make Gentile believers Jews before they could become Christians. Yet God, in His wisdom, has determined that the reached are to sacrifice for the unreached. We give a sizable percentage of our church budget to missions. We believe it's important for us to sacrifice money that we could use for our own church purposes to reach people that have not been reached. We already believe this in our budget, but does it play out in our church life? So let me make a very direct application to you. Over the last two years as a church, Northside has done some uh, pretty amazing things from my perspective, still getting used to this. You've hired two full-time ministers who are in their 20s. Some of you are probably still in shock that that's happened. 
You've hired a senior pastor who is in his <clears throat> late 30s. <clears throat> Very late 30s. You have a chairman of deacons who is in his 30s. Some things have really changed around here. The church has spoken, I think, very clearly about its desire to see young people reincorporated into the life of this church. We recognize the fact that 18 to 30-year-olds are leaving the church in droves. But people who have been here for more than two years, do you fully understand what that will cost you? Young people will dream different dreams than you will dream. They will tweak things in directions that you would never have thought of. Are you okay with that? And my great fear in saying this is that, you know, there's like some one-two punch that I'm going to preach a sermon on change in the church, and you think like next week we're going to have dancers on the stage or something like that. There's nothing like that happening. I'm saying we need to prepare our hearts so that when change begins to happen, we deal with it the right way. There is nothing that will get ministers and churches riled up than the idea of change in a church. Change for the sake of novelty, if we were seeking to be a cool church, we don't need to pursue that kind of change. But if it's change to help us pursue our mission, that's the kind of change we need to get behind. If the changes that we're making are things that are going to help us be more faithful to God. And so today that means several things for our church. Young people, And I don't know where to draw the demarcation line for young people. So I'll let you figure that out for yourself. 50 and under? Sure, why not? I don't know that people younger than 50 would consider you young people, but let's just play with that. Young people, you have to understand that for our older adults, they grew up in a a very different culture than people 40 or 50 and younger grew up in. For our old people, change is not a really happy process because things have stayed the same for them for so long. The church culture that we have today, the church culture, how we do church, today is the product of our senior adults' lives and their grandparents' lives. And from their grandparents to them, church didn't change a whole lot in that 50 to 75 years. It stayed fairly the same. Over their lifetime, church changed very little. So young people, be very careful being dismissive of things that our senior adults worked so hard to build. Their motives were right. Uh, Things in our church are precious to them that may not be very important to you. And the Bible says as a church, we're supposed to show love and deference to one another. So young people, be patient with our older folks related to change. Can we do that? That that was a, a great place for someone to say amen. Older friends, understand that young people have grown up with change being a constant for them. I love this. My kids, I think at the, um, at the Staten's home, saw a rotary dial telephone for the first time in their life. And I love, this is a, a great analogy because it fits. Um, our senior adults, young people, they never changed phones in their whole entire life. They had one phone in the kitchen, and that was it. Older friends, young people, about every year to 18 months when Apple launches a new iPhone, they wait for hours in mile-long lines to get a new phone, and they already have one. 
Now, listen, that's some great marketing to make people buy something that they already have. I don't get it. But the point is that young people have grown up where change is just a part of life. It's natural. It's cool. It's exciting. Wow, look what my phone can do. I can play video games. I can do all kinds of things. And so older people, you don't ever remember getting a new phone because you already had one. You didn't need one. (laughs) Most people who are under 40 have probably had 10 plus phones in their lifetime. And they can't wait for the next one to come out because they'll go buy a new one. Change is just a part of their life. What we have to understand is that when they come to a church and they see a church that belongs to their grandparents, they assume that there's some obsolescence, that there's some irrelevance. And what are they going to do? They're going to go look and see if they can find a place that's more relevant for them. So listen, we have a quandary before us. We have to be patient with change. We have to understand that incorporating young people thoroughly into our church requires it. And when our church programming doesn't look any more modern than 1954, that's a struggle for young folks. So the sad truth is that if we enshrine our methodology more than our mission, for our senior adults, you may live in a church that you thoroughly enjoy. And you may enjoy it for all your lifetime, but your funeral will be the last service that we have here. When I worked in college ministry, uh, one of the things that we always knew you had to do is you constantly had to be reaching freshmen. Yeah, you want to keep your sophomores, your juniors, and your seniors, but if any point in college ministry you do not reach freshmen, you have begun the death process. You constantly have to have uh, be replenishing because, I mean... Ideally, college students are only supposed to be in college for four years. Now, that's rarely the case anymore. But your college ministry should look completely different every four years. And if you're not constantly reaching new people, your ministry begins to atrophy. And again, when we start thinking like missionaries, are we really on the forefront of our thinking, thinking about reaching new people? It's just a question that I have. I suppose it might be said that I'm doing a good job if I get shot at from both sides. The people that are pro-heritage, if they're not happy, but the people that are pro-innovation, going, too much change is happening, not enough change is happening. I suppose perhaps at that point that I'm doing an okay job navigating this tension of maintaining our heritage but being faithful to our mission. And I say this just to encourage your prayer on this issue. And join me somewhere in the middle so that I'm not there by myself. Now, these are strong words. Is there any hope when it comes to being intentionally inclusive? Yes, because Paul does not stop there. And I think he gives us a wonderful example of a person who is meek in ministry and grateful for grace in verse 8. Look what Paul says about himself. He stands at the pinnacle of this Old Testament, New Testament transition, uh, temple to church transition. And in verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. It's not by mistake that Paul refers to himself as the least of all saints. It seems that for Paul, the older he got, the the more meek he became. Early in his ministry, he said, Hey, I'm the least of the apostles. Well, the apostles is a pretty elite group of people. I wouldn't mind being the least of the apostles. That's better than 98% of the rest of the world. But here, what does he say? He says he's the least 
of the saints. Well, now it's not the apostles, it's the saints. I'm the least of all Christians. And then later on in his life, do you know what Paul says? I am the least of all sinners. What happened as Paul got older? Did he become more vile? Did he become a greater sinner? No. He just became very meek in the sense that he understood his heart more. He understood his heart. I love it. One Bible teacher joked that when Paul talked about himself, in this passage specifically, he liked to refer to himself as small Paul. He didn't think he was all that big of a fuss. He thought he was a pretty minor player in the thing, in, in, in the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so, church, while we may not agree, we may not agree to agree on every single church issue, we will be a happy and healthy church if we can be meek like Paul demonstrates for us. Paul says, it's not about me. I'm glad to be the least of the apostles, the least of the saints, the least of the sinners. And being a meek church will help a church deal with the tension of being faithful to our heritage, but faithful to our mission. So as we talk about the challenges of including multiple groups in our church, Paul's third point is very helpful too. We are to be meek about self when we marvel at the mystery of the gospel, but we're to be powerful in proclamation. You see, there are some things in churches that need to change, perhaps every 10 or 20 years. We need to update our methodology. We don't update what we proclaim. There is one gospel that that has been around forever and is not going to change. And I love this because Paul says very carefully here that, listen, I'm the least of the saints, but then he is bold as a lion in his proclamation of the gospel. Paul's goal here, he says in verses 8 to 10, is to evangelize the Gentiles, to explain God's eternal plan, and to illuminate the great wisdom of God. And within this context, he says two things that are awesome as we begin to wrap up this passage. Did you notice how he talked about evangelism? Look at verse, oh, where is it here? Verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach, to evangelize the Gentiles with what? The unfathomable, the inestimable, the uncountable riches of Christ. Do you consider evangelism a privilege or a duty that you have to do? Paul said, we get the opportunity to take God's inestimable riches and hand them out. You ever gone through a drive-thru and the person in front of you has paid for your meal and you don't even know who they are? They're passing out their riches. They may not be very rich, but they, they do something just to randomly bless a stranger. The Bible says that when we talk about evangelism, instead of being treasure hunters, we're treasure hander outers. And that changes the idea of what evangelism is all about. But the other awesome thing, did you see it? This multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God is made known as a cosmic proclamation through the church. That's far beyond our normal experience of what we think church is to be and what churches are to do. But there's even more to it. Paul, by referring to God as the one who created all things, is telling us that the church is the crux of history. When Jesus died on the cross, it was to establish a church. In this attitude that we have that the church is like an earring that we can ladies choose to wear or choose to wear something else. 
that it's an optional accessory to life is completely apart from God's intention in establishing the church. Paul is telling us that the church was God's plan all along. From the very dawn of time, God had planned to save people through the gospel, which in Paul's language means through the church. The church is central to history. The church is central to the gospel. And by implication, the church should be central to our lives as Christians. When we act like the church, we make a proclamation to the nations, to our neighbors, and to the heavens of God's wisdom that echoes down through the halls of eternity. And so this glorious picture brings us to another tension. What the Bible says the church is to be falls so falls short of what we experience to be. It's a mess, but it's a glorious mess. God calls us to be proclaimers of his gospel. And the truth is, if a church is not messy, then it probably means there's not a lot of work going on. Guys, if you've got a, a wood shop that is a, you can eat off the floor, I can tell you one thing, you don't use it to cut a lot of wood. We need to be the kind of church that is working for these things. And so what, what, what are the implications as we talk about a message like this? Number one is to value the treasure. If we have the opportunity to talk about the unfathomable riches of Christ, to understand that the church is part of God's eternal plan, then the church should be precious to us. Not the building, not the carpet, uh, not the windows or the light fixtures, but the church as the people of God. The truth is you don't have to go to church to be a Christian in the same way as you don't have to go home to be married. But if you're married and you never go home, your marriage is going to get called into question at some point. So friends, if you are a once-a-year church attender, that's not what God wants for you. He wants you to be a vital and active part of his church. Value the treasure. Number two, grace serves. I think a lot of times we view ministry as our gift to God. Hey, God, aren't you glad I've been a Sunday school teacher for 25 years? What does Paul say? He says, the grace given to me. Paul views ministry as God's gift to him. Paul used his grace to serve, and we should do the same. And last but certainly not least, the Bible would plead with us to live out our unity. There is a tension with bringing Jews and Gentiles into one body. There is a tension with bringing young people and old people into one church. But God's wisdom is that our unity would protest the divisions that exist in our world. Where else do young people and old people hang out in this world? Nowhere. May it be true that as we value the church, as we take God's grace to serve, that we live out our unity in such a way that we proclaim the gospel by our togetherness. And I pray that we can be that kind of church for a lost and dying world. Pray with me, please. Oh, Lord, you give us wonderful news about your gospel. Lord, we would be um, dismissive to recognize the hardness of our own hearts. We would be dismissive to um, not acknowledge the difficulty that comes in really living out your mission. So, Lord, as we think through these things, help us to major on what's most important. 
Help us to value this church. Help us to value your church. Help us to pursue unity. Help us to be faithful in our mission. Lord, there may be those here that have no idea what it means to really, truly trust Christ. Like the testimony shared this morning as we talk about a church that's centered on the gospel. There may be people who are struggling with just peace with God. I pray this morning during our invitation that if there are those that need to come, that they will come. That if there are those that have watched these faithful testimonies of people whose lives are being transformed by truth, who are committing their lives to Christ through baptism, if there are those that need to be baptized, if there are those that need to join this congregation, Lord, that you'll bring them. Because we believe that the church is certainly not our idea. It's your idea. And you will be the one who is faithful to build it. In Jesus' name we pray.